couple of people I, who used to work for me started doing taking my advice and investing. And there's one guy in California who I met him for lunch in mid 2018, and he said, "Peter, he said, thanks for helping me out with this knowledge. I've applied myself with your techniques. I've now replaced my corporate salary. I can choose what I want to do in life." And and that was. And he said, "Why don't you teach other people how to do it formally?" And that's what we did. So Karen and I got together. We were both investing independently. Uh, together on a couple of multifamily buildings and we said you know yeah we can do this let's start to get the message out welcome to investing in the u.s a podcast for real estate investors business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the u.s market Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Peter Badger, co-founder of Global Investor Alliance. Now, Peter and his wife are on a mission to help people obtain the mindset, strategies, and tools to create recurring income from global real estate investing and ultimately accelerate their wealth-building trajectory. Peter spent 25 years on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley, and today, his real estate investing and education is his full-time endeavor and quenches his thirst for purpose, global travel, and adventure. To top it all off, he is most passionate about the consistent income building capabilities of multifamily and the intergenerational wealth building available through farm and agricultural investing. And to top it all off, he's an expat like I am, coming to America and making it happen. So I'm really excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible story with me. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Peter. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Good. How are you doing, Reid? Thank you for having me. Oh, mate, my pleasure. Um, before we dive into the nuts and bolts, uh, where are you dialing in from today? I am dying for the mountains in uh, the Rockies in Colorado. So very excited to be here for July 4th weekend. So. Ah, yes. Yes. Is, is, are things shutting down there uh, in that state? We're opening. So we've been very fortunate and uh, people wear masks and it's been you know, so good. Knock on wood. Good. 
knock on wood, unlike here in LA where we, our 4th of July weekend is no beaches. So uh, we're going to be stuck at home. <laughs> but, mate, let's get into it. So uh, the first question I ask all my guests when we jump on the, the show is rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Uh, paper round, like most uh, young kids in our generation maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I used to I, I remember used to do the morning round because you couldn't get the evening round, so that was the easy one to get. So I used to do, you know, six mornings, Monday through Saturday in blustery England, raining most of the time for a pound 55 a week. How's that? Wow. 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 I don't know if that ages you or you just we were getting really cheap labor. <laughs> but I think the worst thing was is like a 12, 13-year-old kid is I used to blow all that on chocolate on the Saturday afternoon and they got the wage. So, you know. <laughs> but, mate, tell me a little bit about your story, the coming to America story, because I, I, I'm, I'm interested in it being an expat myself, coming to the land of quote-unquote opportunity and really your journey. Because I mentioned before you'd spent 25 years. Sounds like you've been in the United States for some period of time yeah. because you, you, you did some Silicon Valley stuff and you were also on Wall Street. So maybe give us a bit of a background. Yeah, the brief US story is I was um, university in London and we used to get these American students coming across for the summers. And I ran the bar in the summertime to make some extra money. And you got to go on a bunch of people and they used to invite me back and they actually paid for my ticket to visit Michigan State University. And oh, so wow. Okay. I went back there and then, you know, quit college and I moved straight to the States because it was kind of like, I just like the freshness and the positivity of American, you know, business and society in general, you know, because it, it, it is still true that you can achieve anything because of the size of the market in reality, mm-hmm. you know, 300 mm-hmm. plus million people and you can do things that you can't do in smaller countries. And so I just loved the concept and, and moved. Interesting. It's interesting you bring that up because I've actually spent some period of time in, in London as well. And Australia is very similar. It's, it's a British colony. Um, uh, it's still under, not British rule, but it's under the Commonwealth. But, but that sort of, I don't want to say tall poppy syndrome, but there seems to be, there's just a different way of Aussies and Brits compared to Americans and sort of the the land of opportunity. I don't know if it's an ego thing here, but it's very enticing to to a lot of us on the other side of the pond. Well, I mean, I was asked for the first few years, you know, from my friends back in the UK, why you live in America? Because people have, you know, let's say opposing views of Americans and the American lifestyle. And, you know, I don't I don't want to Brit bash, but this story is necessary to do that slightly, is that from a mentality standpoint, you used to say, listen, you know, if if you see a Porsche in America, the average person look at the Porsche and say, hey, you know, it's a beautiful car. If I work hard enough, I could achieve that. In Britain, they'd see the car in the street and they'd say, you know, you know, I'm jealous and scratch it with a key. Now, I'm being slightly facetious, but the mentality of believing and, frankly, you know, working hard to gain those advantages in life happens more in America than often Commonwealth countries, you know, like we're from. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I find when I go back to have to quell my relative success and not talk about it too yeah. much because I do get that tall poppy syndrome and people may not have left and they get jealous or not jealous but and I've had I've had Americans tell me the same thing here in the states like it just depends where you're from and the fact that we have an accent here that you don't really maybe come across it as much have you seen that part of it at all in your experience going back to, to the UK the, the jealousy I mean I'm interesting because I was um, in Silicon Valley for a while and I became a mentor from startups back in London mm-hmm. in Silicon Alley as we call it and <laughs> I, I've got to tell you in America in Silicon Valley in particular, Everybody you meet wants to help you and help you succeed. Back in London, people were taking pot shots, criticizing your business model, your belief system, what you're trying to build, et cetera. And, and it truly is the lack of positivity, I think, which doesn't allow certain places in the tech scene to basically 
breakthrough, I think, personally. And, there's, and there's, you know, it's hard to be generic about this stuff. Sure. No, no. But, but I, I think I hear you on what you're trying to say because definitely that abundance mindset, yeah. quote unquote. And, and I do see the other side of the coin where they're you know, from home and got friends and family. They think it's all a bit of a, a circle jerk. <laughs> but, you know, you need, you know it's, it's once you're in the thick of it and coming and doing business here that you see that just the, the ability to, okay, you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps if you want to. Yeah. Um, so, th- so I guess that I, I had a couple of other um, expats on this show. What's your experience been like coming to the United States and having that accent? Have they treated you any differently? Um, the open arms. I, I've had some Australians actually say to me that in the South, at least, they're like, we love having, you know, the, the, the adage is we love having beers with Aussies, but when it comes to business, you know, all the Australians need to leave the room. And I've had the complete opposite, you know, experience. So I, don't, I was wondering, what's your experience been to, today? Uh, mine's been 100% positive. I mean, people listen to me because of the accent. And I think mm. I open doors more because of the accent, because we're different from everybody else they hear. And so yeah. I think for me, I mean, I moved to New York City in my 20s, early 20s after college. And so you can imagine it was like a, you know, kid in a candy store from a <laughs> business opportunity, you know, a relationship standpoint. And and so, yeah, I think um, we get away with a lot more. You know, I think it's, um, yeah, it was, it was all positive on all that things, mm. having English accent in America. Well, I, and I think the, the big things that you, you mentioned Silicon Valley, you mentioned New York, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're calling in from, you know, I know you now live in Denver. It's, they're very world cities. You yeah. know, they're very, they're boiling pots of um, different multicultural centers. And it's, it was, I remember my, my nervousness coming to the United States trying to get a visa, you know, for a job and then realizing, and when I went to New York, Everyone was bloody a foreigner, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, everyone was on a visa. So it wasn't like it wasn't my own, you know. It was my shortcomings of thinking, you know. Oh gosh, I, I'm, no one's going to offer me a job. But it's like, oh, you got a visa? Cool, yeah. Get in the line with with the other guys. That there's ten other people in this company that do, <laughs> do the same thing. So, but mate, tell me a little bit more about how you got into the world of real estate investing and now starting Global Investor Alliance because this is really the nuts and bolts of of the life you want to live. And and really, when was that epiphany moment of saying, screw this corporate world and screw Silicon Valley, and I'm going to go out on my own and, and try to create something from nothing? Well, so I think I had kind of two phases of my journey. So I spent 18 years on Wall Street, you know, lived in New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong, you know, Zurich, back to London for a while. I did all the financial centers and I drank the Kool-Aid. And so from my perspective, I'm like, you know, it was all about stock market. And then um, I did get bored after 18 years of all the corporate, you know, meetings and politics mainly. And I was like, let's go and start my own business. Had a couple of ideas. I searched for a few years. And then I jumped out to Silicon Valley. I was living in Northern California in Marin County, just outside of San Francisco at the time. And we basically, me and my co-founder, Stephen, we started a tech company in the enterprise software space. Uh, we did bootstrapping for a couple of years, VC funding, Series A, Series B, raised about 24 million bucks. And it took about eight years to get acquired. And so my actual real estate journey even though I'd had some single family home rentals, a couple prior to that date, it wasn't until I actually had the exit on Silicon Valley that I had to start thinking seriously about what to do with my assets in reality. And so the funny, I mean, I, just to stay there for a second, I mean, in Silicon Valley parlance, people ask you, did you have a single, a double, a triple, or a home run? And just to give people who aren't familiar with this stuff, you know, a single is 50 million or less exit. 100 million double, 500 million, and a billion, you know, so you get the gist here. So, I mean, mine was a single. And once federal and California state tax had been taken out, you know, it was a, it was a few million, but I had to really think seriously about what to do with that. So I started surveying everybody in my network 
by now had gone from corporate Wall Street people to Silicon Valley and entrepreneurs. And the message I received was actually quite interesting for me because it was everybody said, you can only build your wealth through real estate. Even, even the Silicon Valley people? Mostly the Silicon Valley people because you, know, you, you had a few of the old boys and been through corporate careers like I had. And they were like, yeah, stock market, stock market. Where else am I going to put it? You know, one of those kind of things. Uh, but, but there was a whole raft of people who were mostly founders, CEOs, multi-exit guys, and one woman. Sadly, it's a bit of a demographic issue over there. Um, but basically, they all said, listen, don't put it in the stock market. It's a bit of a gambling routine. Put it into hard assets, real estate, mainly being that one, gold, et cetera. And so I actually went through and interviewed people, and I got a couple of contacts. I networked with them. How do you buy real estate? And I went down this path, actually, and I probably met the wrong person to start. I started buying single-family homes en masse. And so the really important thing about my journey was I went through four asset classes to really learn the mistakes I'd made early on <laughs> over a, probably a four- or five-year period. And so it was classic. So I kind of like met some network that was selling single-family homes, turnkey you know, living in California, you know, like the house we were living in, you know, it's a mill, couple of mill, isn't it? California nowadays. And then right now it was near the big cities. And you could buy a three bed, two bath, two car garage house in Florida or Texas for a hundred grand. And I was like, what, what is this land of like, you know, non-California, non-New York housing? So I went on this journey. And so I, I basically started buying single family homes and what most people don't realize as an American resident or, or um, citizen is you can actually have 10 traditional mortgages per person. So if you're married, you can have 20 traditional mortgages. So you could buy a $100,000 home, basically have a 75 grand mortgage, put 25 down plus two or three grand to close, and you can just start building a portfolio that way. And they start bringing in between three, 400 bucks in cash flow. And that's a turnkey. You know, there's no value out at that point. And I started doing that. And so over 18 months, I actually ended up buying 21 single family homes. And it was great because they were turnkey. They'd just been re renovated. You know, I was lucky with some of the people who had been renovating them. So they were like pretty high quality. And I mean, you know, so people don't talk about money in real estate much. So I'll kind of give a flavor for this. And so um, I was earning net income of about 12 grand a month on those 21 single family homes. Eight were mortgaged, 13 were cash. And in some markets, so I had like four houses in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And you couldn't get a mortgage because they were like 50, 60 grand. And no one's going to bother giving you a mortgage for 30, 40 grand because it's not worth underwriting, frankly. Um, so I shaped this portfolio, three different states, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas, 21 homes. I had six property managers. And it was all going fine, 12 grand a month, six, seven, eight months counting. At the year mark, things started getting a bit dodgy, let's call it, because tenants started moving out. And then I realized like quickly, well, now I've got a tenant vacant house. I've got mortgage in some cases, taxes, insurance. And I've lost this for six weeks, got some rehab costs, repainted, fixing the stuff that's broken. These were, by the way, in kind of like C plus B minus markets. So it wasn't a great tenant base for some of these neighbors for the 100 grand housing. And so I went through this journey basically whereby my income would go from 12 to 10 to 10 and a half to seven when somebody broke in a house and stole an air conditioner when it was empty for a month. 
I mean, I mean, so you go through this single family journey. I had six property managers. It really, you know, it's hard to find decent property managers, we know. So I ended up in like at the end of this two year journey, uh, I was at this real estate meetup in Tampa and I advise people listening to this, watching this on YouTube, if you, whichever channel, go to property meetups any, any way you can. Just network all over the place. And so I pitch up in this Tampa, Florida property meetup. I've just been to see a property manager to work out why my two houses are empty, you know, work out how to fix this stuff. And basically, whatever meetup happens, you have an intro section where you all give you a 30 second elevator pitch. Then you have a bit of a presentation thing in network at the end. And so I gave my elevator pitch. I thought I was a bee's knees, you know. I was like, yeah, my name's Peter. You know, I moved to America, did a bit of Wall Street, Silicon Valley. I gave my BS story. Oh, and by the way, I'm financially free. I own 21 single-family homes. That was my 30-second pitch. And I, I was a little bit arrogant, say the least. And, you know, it's 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 hard to look back on those days, who, who I was. I was a bit full of myself. And this guy at the end of the presentation came to me and said, well, he said, well, you're an idiot. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, taken aback. I'm like, oh, oh. And he said, what you should have done is you should have bought one or two single-family homes to understand the mechanics and how it works and then started buying multifamily buildings because you could have saved yourself a hell of a lot of hassle. You could have bought like two homes and then bought a 20 unit, saved yourself 18 months of hassle efforts. Oh, and by the way, your business model is broken because if they break, yeah, you've got 21 roofs to fix. If you've got central air, you've got 21 air conditioning units. You've got plumbing. You've got, I mean, you know, we know the game. And so it's like you've got infrastructure issues. Your expenses are high. You've got single tenant fault lines in every property you have. Buy a 20-unit building. Three or four or five can leave. If you buy it right, you'll be fine. And that was like a real eye-opener. And so after being shocked by his, you know, initial calling me an idiot, I actually pivoted quickly to multifamily. And I bought a couple of buildings and, and sold a bunch of single-family homes. At 1031, which is avoiding capital gains into these homes. And um, and that was a you know a classic. And I'm, so this journey just continues to the asset classes. So you know, you go to another meetup. And I, I was going, I was doing three or four meetups a week, by the way, during the peak season. Whatever state I was visiting to either look for housing or for look for multifamily to do my analysis of properties. And and met another couple, and they were like into mobile home parks. And they were like, well, why are you buying multifamily buildings? Because in the mobile home park, there's no building. It's often a pad. <laughs> you got a piece of concrete and a couple of utility connections. So what are you messing around at? You're an idiot, you know? And, so, and then my journey ended like, it must have been a few months later than that. And it's like some, some person I met and they said, um, well, I'm sorry, you've, you've got it all wrong. Why wouldn't you buy agriculture? Because there's no concrete pad or utility hookup. And so, I mean, I mean, I've been through this journey, and, and I think what I've concluded is, is, and what we teach our investors in the alliance is really two asset classes predominantly, because I've been uh, consistently to make money and build my wealth on those two asset classes. And so, the first one is multifamily in the United States predominantly, because the U.S. It's probably one of the most predictable and consistent real estate markets on the planet. There is so much data that you can analyze around market cycles. You know, there's 400 MSAs, metropolitan statistical areas. We have all the data 
from both the metro area down through the zip code, down through the actual neighborhood block by block, where you can work out you know, population growth, job growth, hopefully lowering crime rates, um, medium condo house values. I mean, I, it, it frustrates me meeting people who jump into real estate because some mates have broke, you know, real realtor and said, oh, you should buy one of these. They don't do this analysis. So, um, you know, to, to summarize the U.S. multifamily real estate, there is so much free data out there to help you analyze on a top down or bottoms up basis of whether that market is worth investing because it's growing or not. And then you can do the analytics on the on the actual asset itself at that point. And so, honestly, if I was to tell anybody anything, it's, you know, look at multifamily, um, smaller buildings or syndications if you, you know, want to club together with other people. And, and that will bring you consistent wealth building over the years. I want to echo some of the things. Like I think the one sentence you said, there, 400 MSAs. I, I've been quoting that term for the eight years I've been here. You know, when they say, oh, the US housing market, you know, particularly when after, just after 2008, oh, the US housing market is like, well, the US housing market actually has 400 different MSAs. And within each MSA, there's a there's certain blocks or certain north, south, east, west, west side of the tracks, east side of the tracks, you know, and you can either be north of a certain street or south of a certain street, and very block by block. And that was one of the biggest things I learned yeah. moving to this country is just how it is so block by block and how there is the primary markets that we talk about, the, the you know, the New Yorks, the LAs, the San Francisco's of the world, but then there's these secondary tertiary markets because the population is so massive, yeah. right? 350 million people, I think it is. So you can inhabit north, south, east, west, where, you know, coming from Australia, we're all confined to the coast. So it's just completely different scale here. One thing I, we, we've obviously spoke about a lot in multifamily here, but really I'd love to get your two cents on the agricultural side because I've never actually interviewed anyone about agricultural investing and why I loved your analogy of, oh, the you know, single family. Well, you got all you got 20, 20 roofs. Oh, you got to go to multi because you just got one roof, you know. And then oh, you, no, screw multi. You don't even need the, the the building. You just need a piece of you just need a pad. Oh, screw the pad and the utilities. You just need your agriculture. So I love that sort of journey through that. So tell us a little bit about agriculture and why why you love it so much. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, so I in my interview actually when I exited on Silicon Valley, I was chatting to some uh, very wealthy people. And actually, they put me in touch with their um, financial advisors, let's call them. And it's a whole different ball game. I mean, it was an area that I had never been exposed to. You know, I'm like some like working class British family, you know, just had to have made reasonably good in America. And, um, you know, this one advisor, I won't give names or the family they manage, but they manage the portion of one of the major Silicon Valley families. And, and he said to me, he said, listen, Peter, he said, um, and, and this is early on in the journey, but I didn't really twig at the time. He said, most high net worth family offices can own between 14 and 22% of agricultural assets. 14 and 22%. That's to pass wealth through the generations. And so I'll give a couple of scenarios, and this is where I'm at right now. Because I, I kind of listened to that, but I didn't know what to do with it. What, what do you do with that statement, you know? And so I just happened to, because when you're full-time in real estate, as fortunate as I was at that point, I was networking. I just kept meeting these peripheral people and all of a sudden I was starting to travel. And so we'll come to this bit later, but with my, my partner, Karen, and I were living the nomadic lifestyle, traveling around the world, doing real estate deals. And the more you travel outside the US, the more you see farmland and agriculture, especially in Central and South America, appear amongst your network and people you meet. And so I'll give a couple of examples of why agriculture works for us. So you should think about it like this. We've got a, we've got a coconut farm in Monteria in Colombia. And so we took 
300 hectares, we planted 32,000 coconut trees. And so the beauty about this investment is that you can't get any income for five years because you basically have to clear the land, lay the drainage, make sure there's multiple water sources, make sure it's in a location where there aren't any weather disasters. So outside of the hurricane belt, so come down to Central America, Panama and downwards is my advice. And you basically find the right multi-generational farming team because there's risks in every investment. The question is which risks you take. And so in the same way that a property manager is hard to find that's decent, finding decent multifamily generational farming teams is also hard. But if you do enough research and you, you know, have the right contacts, you can do that. And so we've planted 32,000 trees, took about 18 months to go through and do that. And then over a five-year period, they grow. And I'll give a bit of the economics of this farmland investment. Yeah, sure. 32,000 trees. Um, each coconut tree will produce, on average, 175 coconuts when they're fully growing. That's a year five. A, on a yearly basis, On a yearly right? basis. It's a yep. permanent crop. And I'll talk about row crops in a second. And so when you look at that, 32,000 trees, coconuts, I could walk out the front of that farm and sell a regular coconut for 50 cents. Yeah, that's the that's the worst case for the sale of a coconut. And so you look at the numbers and you kind of like, you've got two and a half million plus from that farm in income every year. It costs us less than a quarter of a million to run that farm that we have. So you look at the margin, that's like software margin. That's like being back in Silicon Valley. And that's the worst case-based model. You know how we're going to sell our coconuts? We're going to basically be creating processing house and doing coconut water because the actual profit on coconut water right now and the growth of that market still they cannot get enough and this is an organic farm by the way this used to be a cattle farm we converted so it hasn't been ruined by big ag and chemicals we basically sold all the cattle off we used the revenues we went through the first five years of the cattle sold them off to run the farm and and here we have a beautiful organic farm and we're now starting to see those trees bloom in year five. And so this is the model here. And so you look at those economics and, and this is, and by the way, you plant a tree, it prints money or produces coconuts between 60 and 80 years. So I'd like to think that I'm Walt Disney and I'm going to come back later in life, but this is for my children. This is the past wealth multi-generationally. And that is what high net worth families do. Got it. And talk to me about just a little bit. Don't have to get too deep, but into the the product itself. Like you say, you took a existing cattle farm, which cattle in itself is a is an agricultural you know investment. Why coconuts? And 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 how do you de- how do you decrease the risk on knowing that coconuts will be wanted for the for the for the for the next 20, 30, 40 years? Well, so so I think the beautiful thing about coconuts is every piece of the coconut can be used. The husk, mm. you know, the water. I mean. Every piece of it can be used for many uses, oils, beauty. I mean, there is, as a, as a crop, there is not a failure business case with that crop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of talk, um, I mean, we could go in for hours about this. This is the problem. Yeah, topic. sure. <laughs> it is so deep and so rich. And I spend between two and three months of research on every different crop, permanent or row crop I go into. So Got it. what are your top what are your top fives these days? <laughs> um citrus. It's all about okay. citrus. Yeah. Pineapple. Citrus. Um, limes. I mean, I mean, anything that is like high quality citrus fruit, there is always a demand for it. 
So we have to remember we're, we're not doing this at scale. You know, we're doing this in raising, you know, we're, we're, we're with farming partners. We help them raise three to $5 million between the farming partner and ourselves and a couple of other, you know, providers. And we're building small scale farms and mm -hmm. we have distribution network through the flight, mostly Panama Canal through sea container, depending on the crop to Europe, Middle East, China, South Korea in some places. And honestly, you're always going to get a market for premium citrus products, as an example, you know, because Interesting. they're looking for high quality, you know, high sugar, high color. And, uh, mm -hmm. and if you get the right team and you get the right investors behind it and you capitalize it well and the right distribution network, you can make a lot of money. And, and so, Interesting. And so my, my standard pattern is for people getting into this is to say, you know, start with multifamily, put 50 to 6% of your wealth into multifamily of hopefully value-add assets and build that foundational wealth in a predictable and consistent market. And then yeah. when you got that, only when you are there, <laughs> start to diversify overseas in hopefully agriculture assets, which can then take away from the US dollar in case the, you know. The World Bank says get lost. <laughs> um, in case the 23 trillion becoming 30 trillion becomes due. Um, uh -huh. Basically, uh -huh. you know, start to diversify you in different currency, different country, and more importantly, in a generational asset, which you can pass through to your kids. I know as in personally myself being a foreigner, and I'm sure the same goes to you. Part of what I think, and it's a bit arrogant, but my superhero powers are is my international perspective. Yeah. Like the fact that multifamily doesn't even exist in Australia. You know, we don't have the funding mechanisms to fund it on a build to rent model, and so it's always it's con it's a condo market. Yeah. How, how how is your is your superpower the same? Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about being international, having I mean, worked on Wall Street for eighteen years and lived in every major city, is I saw real estate in every country and global. Mm. And so I, I, and it's needed everywhere, right? It's a human need. We need shelter. It is, but you also get to the point whereby I know I, I the first thing I look at when I go into a city is I'm like, what's the square foot price per square foot of like a single family home in this neighborhood? Yeah, you know, because because I know that you know in Marin County where I was, it was yeah one thousand two hundred fifty dollars per square foot from a family home. Well, I know here in the neighborhood we just bought is six hundred fifty bucks a square foot. That's you nice. Know? So, that's, a, that's a bargain, yeah. mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it's, it's it's a gentrifying neighborhood. Put it that way. <laughs> and I also know, for instance, that you can buy a you know beach near the beach, two or three blocks back in Plato Carmen, Riviera Maya, in uh, Mexico, a beach condo for two hundred fifty dollars a square foot. And so you you have mm. to be able to understand this ladder of asset type by country. Um, and really have a feel for that. And that's what my global travel background actually has allowed me to do, I think. So I can I can walk into any country, any asset class and get a gauge on whether it's worth going here or not, you know? Well, and that, let's, let's pivot into the Global Investor Alliance and this freedom lifestyle. Because in, in the green room, prior to pressing record here, we spoke about the freedom lifestyle. And I, I want to get to that in a little bit and how you pivoted. But let's talk quickly just a little bit about the Global Investor Alliance. It's obviously an education platform yeah. and telling the, the answers to the test. Um, but why did you want to start that? What was the, the reason to going out and trying to help educate others about the benefits of your investment thesis, for, first and foremost, in, in, in multifamily, but also in agricultural and globally, right? Global Investor Alliance, not American Investor Alliance, it's Global Investor Alliance. Um, there are so many reasons, a couple of them. I've got a lot of friends in the UK and Australia who could not buy property because they can't cash flow. 
but wanted to find a way to get them into the American and other international markets, not only and give them the comfort and the education to do that. The other side is that actually this, this came out on actually by mistake because when you're in real estate, when I'm doing all this stuff, you know, I'm posting stuff on Facebook, sadly, and this other stuff, talking about stuff, and I can met people for lunches, and and a couple of people like who used to work for me started doing taking my advice and investing. And there's one guy in California, Rudy, who I met him for lunch in mid 2018, and he said, Peter, he said, thanks for helping me out with this knowledge. I've applied myself with your techniques. I've now replaced my corporate salary. I can choose what I want to do in life. And and that was, and he said, why don't you teach other people how to do it formally? And that's what we did. So Karen and I got together. We were both investing independently uh, together on a couple of multifamily buildings. And we said, you know, yeah, we can do this. Let's start to get the message out. Because there, there needs to be, we need to bridge the divide, frankly. Those high net worth families shouldn't have all that knowledge to make. No, no, I don't want to get into this, but 1% richer and richer, you know? I want to know our regular people like us. I mean, I was fortunate with, you know, getting a bit of money to invest, but many people we know could do this. They just haven't got the know-how or the knowledge. And so I wanted to give them the confidence, the models, the techniques, and, and the ability to do it. And that's what, so we have an eight-week program to walk people through that. You spend the first couple of weeks working out the mindset stuff because it's all mindset. If I had a dollar for every time somebody joined our alliance, and then after like the first two weeks said, well, you know, my financial advisor said, real estate's too risky. You should keep it in the stock market. And I'm just like, I'd pull my hair if I had any, you know, but it's like, it's frustrating. And I'm like, listen, here's the gig. Wall Street is a marketing machine. You know, it's, it's legalized gambling, you know? And so go off on my bit of a soapbox because they're not real assets. You know, we all understand there's a thing about book value of a company and sentiment-based market value. And that's when the dip happens is when the sentiment disappears, your portfolio disappears. I hear it in your in your your explanation of that you wanted to be have this this one percent mindset slash one percent access to deals that's right to the rest of the world, to the rest of the, the population. And not that you need to be in the one percent, but you can just do a few things differently to potentially replace your job and have more time with your family and have the time freedom, which brings us into the next question, which is you know, when I first met you, and I, I know a little bit about you, you know, your your whole drive was to live in a sort of, we'll call it tax haven type of freedom lifestyle and not have any, you know, things attached to you from from having to pay the Uncle Sam. But that's changed. Maybe fill us in what's, what's happened in the last couple of months since uh, you've moved back to the mainland and why? Well, so we lived over three years in 17 different countries as a kind of nomadic lifestyle. Sounds, sounds busy. Yeah, and, and so I think I think... I wanted to prove that I could play the tax game, let's say. Yep. And I'm an American citizen as well as British. So obviously I'm taxed my worldwide income. So anything I can do to try and, you know, find tax benefits overseas, and there are many legally as a US citizen or resident, you can actually, you know, attain overseas. And so we were we were both trying to invest overseas by traveling a lot. We were living overseas to be nomadic and have a life of freedom that everybody like attains, you know, wants to attain. And we actually end up in Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico became, is the tax haven for American passport holders. And, you know, long story short, you pay 0% on capital gains and dividends and you pay 4% on your company income. Mm -hmm. And I won't go into those finer details, but what we realized was in Puerto Rico, was that we became very bored very quickly. <laughs> and so I would 
I'm embarrassed to admit, but the dream of living in the Caribbean by the beach with the freedom we had is the dream of that is better than the reality of it because there's nothing to do there. And you get up every morning and you walk down the beach for three hours and, you know, all the dogs and then, and then I get on a couple of conference calls, coaching people on investing. And, and I'm like, well, there must be more to this than that. So actually we moved back. To the, so I, I, I did my analysis on all the 400 MSAs <laughs> kind of sad in that way. And um, Austin, Texas came out number one for the lifestyle ones with the real estate um, approach and demo was number two. And we chose Denver because it's, um, you know, it's a beautiful outdoors mountain lifestyle place where we live. So, so now we have bars, restaurants, entrepreneurs. There's a tech scene here. A lot of real estate deals are going down, and, and we're actually, you know, happy as Larry in this uh, location now. So, so it's, it's been a weird journey. And so you've had to give up that sort of zero tax yeah. pursuit, right? But I guess, and, and that's really important for the listeners to to hear that one that. Living on a beach ain't all it's cracked up to be, right? Yeah. And, and and for most people, the reason it ain't most cracked up to be is because we are all inquisitive human beings, right? We want to continue to be challenged, and when we want when we don't have that challenge or that you know that entertainment, I was going to use the word entertainment, then we start to get bored, and that's where the challenge piece we don't then fulfill our needs as human beings, and we want to keep pursuing it, and and then being surrounded by other like-minded individuals. When you're sitting in the Caribbean and you bunch of tourists are on holidays, like uh, you, you want to talk business, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, I could see it happening, becoming old real quick. Yeah. So the problem with Puerto Rico was it's either retirees or tourists. Mm-hmm. But I think the bigger mm-hmm. problem for us over three years was we had no community. Yes. Your nomadic yes. community is not a community. Your nomadic community is a bunch of nomads who aren't tethered to anything or anyone. That sounds like being the biggest realization to you and Karen. Is that right? I, I think at the end of the day, nothing matters more than you know family, friends, and an entrepreneurial network. We can yeah. you know learn from and grow and help others. You know, do the same. The life pivot really. Well, but you also bring up a good point that it's like being an entrepreneur is lonely, right? It is a lonely gig, and until to be surrounded by the reason I do this, I've been doing this podcast for nearly five years is because I get to talk to people like yourself who are on the same wavelength, right? And you're living in Denver, I'm living in LA. But you know, when you don't have that on a consistent basis and you can sort of touch and feel each other, like at a bar or you know, in a networking space, it's it, yeah, I can see why it gets pretty, it gets pretty lonely pretty quickly. But yeah. uh, but it's interesting. Well, welcome back, I should say. Thank you. <laughs> um, we're coming, we are coming to the end of the show, so I, I do want to, I do want to be very respectful of your time. But what's sort of 2020 got in store for you guys and beyond with Global Investor Alliance and and agriculture and multifamily and all the good stuff? Yeah, so I think we're all in a bit of wait mode, aren't we? We we're fortunate, right. you know, our assets are performing very well. You know, shelter shelter in place or stay at home, whatever your term is for your country, is a beautiful thing when you own multifamily real estate, you know. Um, and agriculture, we can't produce enough fresh fruit because, you know, everyone needs um, produce, and that's the beauty of it. So I think, you know, knock on wood, I'm hoping that the quality and style of multifamily we bought in growing cities with a lot of white-collar workers who have just been at home working with the regular wage and the agriculture angle um, is pandemic proof. That was never in my risk matrix, by the way. <laughs> it is now. It is now. Um, <laughs> but, but I think for us, it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of like waiting for the end of summer. CARES Act, stimulus checks end. See whether we're, uh, you know, the alphabet shape recovery, the V, the W with the second wave, the U, the L. So I think in reality, we're 
bringing new members in now. We've got a post-lockdown special at the moment because I think there's no better, there's, there's no you know, bad time to get to knowledge to start investing. And two things happen. Either this economy keeps going through the election and beyond because the Fed will keep pumping money in to make that happen. Um, or if we crash, we expect amazing bargains to be had on all fronts because um, yeah, that's the beauty of it. Well, I think the the big thing, two things is like, one, this ain't going to be the first and last pandemic we've ever seen, right? We, we now, it now adds a new wrinkle probably to your you know, curriculum and, and to our investment thesis. Um, but two, we have, we're now, we now are in a recession. And three, um, we, we have civil unrest. You know, and I don't want to get into that. But you know, the, other, the other thing that's missing here is a world war. <laughs> so you know, the four things that really can, can dictate, and we've got three of them. So it, I think, it's, it's, I, I think the, t- the wave's coming. And, and to your point, like with the election this year, we've got you know, the, the, how long the Fed's going to keep propping up incomes it's going and, and then there's going to be the residual you know quantitative easing post you know stuff which will only help once you're invested in hard assets in my opinion That's right but in saying that the, the only other silver light to this and giving your international like myself is that this is not an american problem it is a worldwide problem and you know rent's due in australia it's due in london it's due in mexico it's due in canada and all landlords are you know sweating it right now so um, and all, all all countries have to stimulate the economy so we're we're all in the same boat together which gives me a little bit of solace compared to say 2008 where it was really just an american problem yeah and it's also a housing problem mainly and so the only thing i'll say to listeners is listen it's um you need hard assets because this may be a deflationary environment for a while, but eventually inflation will come back. And so the only way to beat inflation is to own hard assets. End of story. Because the value goes up with the currency. End of story. I mean, it, I can't lay it out any simpler than that. So if you aren't into real estate, start building now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. All right, mate. Well, at the end of every show, we love to get into the top five investing tips. Ready to get into it? Yep. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I set a schedule to get up in the morning, block out the time, and actually shower and dress as if I'm going to work. Because especially in these shelter-at-home periods, it's so easy not to have that discipline of getting up and showering. Honestly, that's as simple as it gets. Love it, love it. Um, Question number two, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? I am... Reasonably successful because of many mentors. I could not name one or two, honestly, because I've probably been mentored by 10 or 12 of the top people in asset classes in different global locations. Um, yeah, it's really hard for me to kind of pinpoint because I'd be dissing off the other 11. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice to say, I've had my most growth in life because I've admitted to myself that I don't know much. Mm. And you have that mentality and you look at everybody as an opportunity to learn, then mm. that, that is what I go through life with, and, and it's served me well. Question number three, in your business, um, what is the most influential tool? Now, when I mention tool, it could be a journal, it could be a physical tool, like a journal or a phone, or it could be a piece of software that you use on a daily basis. So, so what's the most influential, influential tool in your business? I'm going to give a tool with the people. So we use Slack, and we have our Alliance members in there, and so here's the beauty of the alliance and, and, and why I say Slack plus the people. Our alliance members, when we bring a deal to the portal, we have you know, 60, 80, 100 sets of eyes on that same deal, but with mm-hmm. different views of the world, different blind spots they don't know about, and we become better investors together. And that tool allows us to get in these meeting rooms to discuss an investment in detail 
And so to me, that's the collaboration angle with our Alliance members. It's been, uh, we're, we're better investors because of it. I learn more from my investors than they learn from me, honestly. Right. And it goes back to that, the, the wanting and needing the community, which yeah. is you know part of why you, you, right. you transitioned your freedom lifestyle, which is really, really important. Uh, question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your life and what did you learn from that failure? My biggest failure was buying some beachfront real estate in Brazil from a marketing brochure, having never visited it. So we all have to make the first mistake. Look at the marketing brochure. You trusted somebody through somebody. You didn't do the due diligence. So if you ever invest in real estate, go and visit it or have a trusted third party who truly is trusted. Mm. Go and visit it on your behalf. Never invest blindly. I love it. No, I think that's so important. We get so caught up with the the keeping up with the Joneses and the looking like, oh, we just made this investment in Brazil, darling. You know, we feel so glamorous, you know, and not realizing it's a really crap deal. So, (laughs) mate, last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Yeah, we are at globalinvestoralliance.com. And there's a little button there you can actually click on and chat to me if I'm awake, depending on the time zone. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so honestly, we've got a great group of people. Um, a lot of them even more educated than I am at this point. And so yeah, I think I think we as a human beings invest better together. So mm. you don't have a group of people. You know, if your family members are saying, "Oh, don't get into real estate, you'll lose money," because they've all heard these stories. You know, find the right group of people, whether it's ours or somebody else's, to collaborate with and learn with and do deals with because you'll become a better investor by doing that. Awesome. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show as a bit of a summary. I think the biggest thing that I've learned from you is, one, your ability to pivot really quickly, but two, your humbleness in not knowing everything and being a being able to that old saying, you know, be a trick of all trades, but a master of none, doesn't necessarily apply to you because you've been so humble in your approach and you've surrounded yourself with people who do know what they're talking about and taking bits of advice from each people on, along the way and then planting those seeds in your own investing career to help you see the brighter future. Um, and I love the fact that the blinkers have come off with the freedom lifestyle around community and people and being more focused in and around that and having to give up some of the tax benefits, but you you have such a better lifestyle and, and you're so much more mentally stable than maybe living on a beach in the middle of nowhere bored shitless <laughs> excuse my language but did, did, did i leave anything out <laughs> no i think that's it and just the thirst for learning i mean i'm never yep. gonna stop so yep network Love it. learn educate yourself just continue the rest of your life it's a never-ending journey Love it. Love it, mate. Well, look, again, thank you so much for jumping on today's show. We're going to catch up very, very soon. Enjoy the rest of your week. Happy 4th of July, and we'll catch up Thanks, very, very soon. Likewise. Take care. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Peter. And uh, If you do want to go and check out any of his stuff, please head over to Global Investor Alliance. You can Google that, um, or you can have a, head over to my website and see the show notes and all the links from today's show will be up there. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is by giving it a five-star review on iTunes. And I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. We're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. <laughs>